0: So some of you may know the story of Dr. David Livingston, a bold Scottish explorer. Livingston traveled farther into sub-Saharan Africa than any European had before him. He once survived a brutal lion attack, but it left his arm permanently maimed. He spent years trying to convert pagans to Christianity, though his missionary success was mild. He worked to abolish the brutal slave trade that the Arabs had set up through Africa. But he often relied upon those same Arabs' support for food and during his travels. His final act on Earth was to kneel in prayer to the Lord Jesus, and his companions found his head slumped down with his hands together early the next morning. That was the last thing he did on Earth, dead at the age of 60. Explorer extraordinaire, David Livingston paved the way for others behind him, but he didn't spend as much time with his family at home. See, he was a very accomplished and controversial figure. So, of course, he was very famous in his time. He was a basic celebrity in those days. Everyone wanted to know, where was Livingston now? What was this wild man up to? But it was the 1800s, so the only way to communicate was by letter or telephone wire. There were often long periods of time when the rest of the English-speaking world had no idea where he was or what he was up to. During one of these especially challenging expeditions, no one could contact Livingston for almost five years. Conflicting reports were coming from Africa, with some people confidently saying he was dead. Others equally confidently saying he was alive and well. So he was supposed to be searching for the source of the Great Nile River, which had been an unsolved mystery to the Western world for millennia. Ever since the Greek historian, Herodotus, once tried to sail to the end of the Nile, he started in Egypt, he sailed down, and he got stopped by a massive waterfall, right? This was history. Livingston was gonna make history by finding the source of this Nile, but the stories of his travels were so legendary that they didn't stay just in England and in Scotland, right? The stories like his were so interesting to the American public, that a journalist named Henry Morton Stanley was sent on a mission to go find Livingston, once and for all. Five years is too long of a time to be waiting on the edge of your seat, wondering, where is this man? Dead or alive, Stanley would report back the truth. And believe it or not, Stanley was commissioned right here in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. Here we have a picture of a sign that's right out by Upper Moreland High School. You can go check it out if you want. Henry Stanley to Africa in search of a missing humanitarian and explorer, Dr. David Livingston. Pretty cool, I think it's fascinating. So right here in Willow Grove, Stanley had been sent on a mission to find this mysterious Livingston, who had been sent on a mission to find the mysterious Source of the Nile. An ironic but equally difficult task lay at hand for Stanley. There were many barriers to his success. First, he had to actually find the funding for his travels, which ended up costing an equivalent of today's $200,000. He built a team of strong men, shrewd negotiators, and local guides in order to help him on his journey. Stanley had never been to Africa before. He had to organize his people and materials, and he had to make plans for months before he ever set foot on the continent. When he finally did touch down on the African coast, he had to work his way across by foot some 800 miles of rugged, harsh land. Only occasionally did he find places to rest, either in the villages or in the hunting grounds. More often than not, he was basically backpacking through swamps, jungles, in a 100-degree heat, trying to survive the debilitating sicknesses that he would get and the monsoons that would sweep across the region. He bartered with tribal chiefs who would threaten to attack his caravan if they didn't pay a large enough sum for tribute. Even his own men once tried to murder him. It was a short-lasting mutiny, but it put him on edge for weeks, understandably. His people were tired, the work was exhausting, and everyone was risking their lives. When Stanley finally arrived at his destination, he found Livingston alive. And he gave the explorer some much-needed supplies. See, in that moment, Stanley and his men experienced a joy that only comes from victory after much struggle. Stanley and his men had succeeded where others had failed, and he developed a deep friendship with Livingston. Each man's fame and wealth increased as the stories and the legends of their meeting in the heart of Africa went around the world. You might know the famous words, Dr. Livingston, I presume. So why do I tell you this story of adventure, of exploration, and of triumph? Because today, we are going to look at the mission that we are sent on as Christians. See, Jesus has given us permission and power to witness for him throughout the entire world. Nowhere is outside of our limits. No person is unreachable. No place is too hostile. Stanley and Livingston pierced through the barriers that stood between them and their goals, and I want to inspire you today to pierce through the walls in the name of Jesus Christ. The unlimited power that we have been given to accomplish what Jesus has set out for us is always present. The Holy Spirit, which we received, is always with us. He provides exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. But his spirit enables us to conquer our enemies, to overcome any obstacle, to expand the kingdom of God until the whole earth praises the Father in heaven. Together, we will explore what it means to be powerful witnesses for Christ. Let's begin in prayer. O oh Lord, our great and mighty Savior, we ask that you would lay out clearly your purposes for this church today. We come to you in humble submission knowing that our own ideas are far inferior to yours, God. Transform our minds through the preaching of your word and empower us by the Holy Spirit to accomplish everything you are preparing us for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now before I read you the scripture passage for today, I want to get you into the context so that we can get oriented to what's happening. See, what we're talking about right now is after Jesus' earthly ministry. It's after Jesus died, it's after he resurrected. And you might be surprised that there are some more words that Jesus spoke after the cross. His death, the end, even his resurrection was not the end of the story. And that's the context for the passage which we're about to read today. The disciples were all gathered together in Jerusalem, and Jesus, post-resurrection, was teaching them. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus taught them for 40 days. Maybe some of our college students can relate to this but I recently took a one month intensive course at seminary, okay? I was meeting with my teacher twice a day, every day, Monday through Friday. It was a lot. Well, now imagine taking a one month long intensive course with Professor Jesus. That's what this was like, right? What a special time. And it was a unique time in history that called for this unique way for Jesus to teach his people. So that's the context for our passage. Jesus is meeting regularly with his disciples after resurrecting from the dead, and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. Oh, I need to take the cap off. So, if you'll follow along in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they're all gathered together in Jerusalem, right? And something big is about to happen here. Of course, we know, because we can flip the next page, we know he's alluding to Pentecost, okay? The next chapter of Acts, we read that the Holy Spirit filled his disciples and thousands of people came to Christ. They repented and believed in the name of Jesus. There's really no equivalent to this event in human history. No wonder Jesus is building the suspense, right? It's a big moment and the disciples are excited, but they don't know what's about to happen yet. Acts 2 has not been written yet for these guys. They're right on the verge of an incredible revival, one of the greatest events in church history, and they don't even know it. I can just imagine all the disciples sitting around the table eating their food, and then they hear Jesus say, oh, you're going to be baptized with the Spirit and power. They're mid-bite, and they're just like, what did he say? What did he say? The Spirit? What does he mean? They're all just kind of murmuring amongst each other on the table. And I was curious, when they heard baptism of the Spirit... What did they think of? What did they even know about the Holy Spirit? So I looked it up. You can look this up on various Bible softwares. The phrase Holy Spirit is only used three times in the Old Testament. It's used 90 times in the New Testament. That's a big difference. I thought three times, they must not know very much. But here's where I was wrong. The phrase Holy Spirit is not the only phrase to refer to the Spirit itself. So you can have a concept present in the Old Testament without having the phrase that you're used to hearing in the New. For example, we look at Genesis 1. The Spirit was hovering over the waters when God created the world. Okay, so the Spirit's involved in creation. Or the Spirit of God would fill people at certain times and places in the Old Testament to fulfill a certain task. Think when they were building the tabernacle, right? The Holy Spirit came upon one of the builders to help him complete this task or winning certain military victories. In the Book of Judges, it's full of this, the Spirit would fill these people, these military leaders, to win the battle. And think, of course, the prophets prophesying to the people. The Spirit would fill them before they prophesied. So, the Bible will use these phrases like, the Spirit came upon, or rested on, or even rushed upon them. The disciples would have known something about the Holy Spirit's work. He was active in the Old Testament but they mainly knew about those historical battles and those prophecies about worldly kingdoms. So it's understandable that their response here is not really thinking the same way that Jesus is. right? If we look at verse 6, their minds are remained fixed on these kind of immediate political issues at hand. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they ask. The disciples had lived their entire lives under Roman occupation. The oppressive foreign leaders did not like the Jews, and the disciples were hoping for some relief. Can you really blame them? They thought back to the golden days when the Spirit would come upon King David and it helped him conquer the nations for Israel's sake in the name of God. If the Son of God is telling us to wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit rushes upon us in power, well, maybe we're right on the cusp of a revolution. Why not, right? time to finally overthrow those foreign rulers, shake loose from our shackles, and rule in the name of Jesus. God had done this kind of thing in the past. And we even know that there was that extremist group called the Zealots. They were around in Jesus's time. They were ginning up that kind of political mentality in the Israelites. So it's understandable to think this might be what they wanted and what they were thinking would happen. But it's funny that Jesus replies with perfect wisdom. Right? And he replies with love for these overly zealous disciples. He hears them asking their question, and he doesn't answer it. Just look at their question again. He says, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's a simple yes or no question. But Jesus completely reorients the conversation. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Verses 7 and 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God has his own purposes. God has his own plan. And the political aims of the Jews were not his top priority. Jesus knows his disciples well, and he didn't want them to be obsessed about some vision of a Jewish utopia. He wanted them to be obsessed about the coming and the extension of the kingdom of God. You can almost hear him reminding those overly eager disciples, right? A couple verses come to mind. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's Matthew 6. Or, it is too light a thing to raise up the tribes of Jacob. My salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. That's powerful stuff. And isn't it so true that you and I today can get wrapped up in those very same political battles going on in our country, right? We listen to Fox News every night or NPR every morning. And we say, if only God were to act now, oh, Lord Jesus, are you at this this time going to restore the government to, insert political party here, you and I are no different from these men and women who, though they were really truly disciples of Jesus, they got so caught up in the here and now of the earthly kingdoms. They became nearsighted, right? They could see what was happening before them so clearly, but they couldn't see an inch beyond it. Jesus knows his people well, he knows us well, and he refuses to answer that short-sighted, worldly-focused, simple yes or no question. He shifts the entire conversation into his court. He just picks it up and he moves it over there. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. Zip, nada. Don't even ask that question. You have a purpose and a calling and it's not trying to predict the future. You're not meant to know those dates and times. Friend, if you hear someone claiming, maybe, oh, it's the end of the world, the world's gonna end in 2062, the Bible told me, you have an easy answer. Just tell them, Jesus said, it's not for us to know the times and the dates. Simple and plain. God's plan is working forward, but we aren't gonna know when it happens until it's already here. So Jesus, he shuts down that question completely. But then look at what he gives them positively, right? He doesn't just kind of leave them floundering about, wondering what's going on. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Not this, right? That. He reframes their question, and he points them towards the true mission to which they're called. The Holy Spirit will certainly come, but this power that they're given from heaven is not to fight some holy war with Rome. That's much too light of a thing for God. Don't worry about when Rome will be destroyed. Jesus just kind of grabs their head and he turns it and he says, this is what you should be concerned about. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the mission. The mission of Jesus' disciples is to be powerful witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're excited about this mission. I hope you're excited. But there's a key distinction that I want to make at this point and I just want to slow it down a little bit. Because this question is a good one. Is the mission of the apostles and the early disciples, what we've just read about, is that mission the same one that we have, or put another way, because the disciples were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, is their mission the same as us sharing our testimony to the truth of the gospel? Right? Is that the same thing? And nobody's trying to deny that the apostles, they had a really important role in the early church. But there will be some churches that claim that the office of apostle is still continuing on. That we should be sending out people like Jesus sent out the apostles. Some people call themselves the new apostolic reformation, emphasizing this kind of idea. They suppose that there's no difference at all between the apostles' mission and our mission, right? That's what they think. And you might find this maybe more charismatic circles. You could find this idea. Or other people, they'll just sit back in the luxury of their established churches, right? They're kind of apathetic about sending anybody out to missions. They think, oh, God will accomplish his purpose. he's sovereign, don't worry about missions, right? Let's just stay in our local church, take care of our business, love our neighbors. They suppose there's no connection at all between what the apostles' mission was and what our mission is. This mindset may be a little more common in some more traditional Protestant denominations or maybe even Roman Catholic churches, but I love the answer that we find in the scriptures, right? Yes, there is a distinction between the mission that the apostles had and ours, but yes, there is a connection as well. It's all about the coming of the kingdom. So I have this graphic, hopefully, this will help explain it a little bit. You've heard Jesus described as the cornerstone, right? The kingdom of God comes when Jesus comes to earth and he establishes that kingdom, he is the cornerstone. The apostles, Those are the ones who lay that foundation. They establish the church as well. But the extension of the kingdom, that's all of us, right? This is the witnessing that we do to the ends of the earth. So Jesus comes, and then the kingdom gets extended to the end of the earth. That's kind of what we're working with here, right? And in order to accomplish this extension, to overcome those barriers, God uses witnesses to do this. Witnesses. There's two main types of witnesses. To be a witness for Christ, you either have to see or know Jesus for yourself. So the apostles, they were the eyewitnesses for Christ. They saw Jesus die and rise again, and their mission was special. It was in a special situation, right? Nobody will ever lay a foundation to Christianity like the apostles did. That was a once-and-done mission. The earliest disciples wrote the New Testament so that our Bibles right here have those eyewitness accounts, right? These were the people that were closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry. That's what I want to hear from, right? And they play that role that just can't be imitated today. So if you wanted to be an apostle, sorry guys, you should have been born 2,000 years ago in Galilee. What can I say? But us Christians today, we can be true witnesses. That's the key thing. They were eyewitnesses, but we can be true witnesses. How are we witnesses? Because we know him for ourselves. We can testify to the amazing grace he has given us and how it transformed our lives. We can testify to the truth of the Bible. We can teach other people making disciples. So if I can make the analogy here, to be a witness, there's three spaces that he encourages people to to witness, right? There's in Jerusalem, there's in Judea and Samaria, and there's to the ends of the earth. The analogy, I guess for us, would be something like here in Willow Grove, Philadelphia area, and internationally, right? That's kind of what he was telling the disciples. Those are the three spaces that he wants to extend the kingdom of God in, using them as witnesses, right? Well, I'm going to start with a few practical examples. You're thinking, maybe how can we do this? First one's a pretty easy one. We just got off of vacation Bible school, right? That was an amazing opportunity to see all of the body of Christ here working together, volunteering, and making this happen for the kids to see Jesus. And so we really witnessed well to our community, and we called people into the church, and we met them where they were. I love that. Vacation Bible School was just a great way to get in touch with some of our local families. Some of them were close friends with members already at the church, and I know the kids had an absolute blast learning about the Bible. But then we think about Judea and Samaria. Well, that's maybe our Philadelphia area. This one, another easy example. We just sent these guys on this commissioning to go to Philly, right? To be the hands and feet, to kind of meet those tangible needs that the Philadelphia area has. And I'm really hopeful that this act of giving food and water to these people in need will actually open up a conversation. We can witness to them about the living bread and the living water that Jesus offers. So I'm praying for that, I'm really hopeful that as we send out these kids into the Philadelphia area that we'll see some hearts transform from that work. Okay, so we talked about VBS, we talked about commissioning to Philly, what about the ends of the earth? The ends of the earth. Recently, this is kind of a sore spot for us, maybe a little bit, but we send people to Transnistria every single year, right? This is a small country between Moldova and Ukraine, and we send missionaries there as a group um, on a short-term missions trip, and it's a really great opportunity to witness to these people, to help orphans in need, and Satan's been just working against that trip for a couple of years now. So first of all, they had the COVID pandemic that stopped us. Then the Ukrainian war, of course. We're not going to go into a war zone. So, but maybe we, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but seriously, this is a barrier between us and the mission that God sent us on. Or is it? See. I was thinking about this, I read a a few books kind of leading up to the sermon about missions, and one of the stories was really breathtakingly amazing. So, I don't know if you've ever heard about the missionaries that were sent to Madagascar. But the missionaries that were sent to Madagascar, when they first showed up, they were having some success. They converted a few people, the church was growing, and then people got angry. They said, "Eh, these Christians, we don't want them here. So whatever the leaders were at that island, they kicked them off, and they weren't allowed to come back to the island for 25 years. It's a long time. The missionaries that had originally gone to Madagascar were probably thinking, what is going to happen to the small church? They had no support. They're off by themselves. They probably barely know anything we were trying to just teach them. They came back after 25 years, and the church had grown 10 times bigger. The witnesses in that country had been working, and when they came back, the missionaries realized, wow, they did better than we did. <laughs> and I'm wondering, is that what Transnistria is going to be like for us? Are we going to go back after a few years and see this overwhelming response to the people that were already there that they witnessed to Christ so well that we're coming back and we're like, wow, you know? So I'm really excited that maybe when we do break down that barrier, when we pierce through that wall and we say, we're going to get back to Transnistria because these are people that we're called to and we love these people and we want to help them, that who knows, God is not stopped to go down there. Right? He's already at work over in Transnistria. Maybe he's already doing an amazing thing and we'll get to see that. So let's not imagine that God is inactive when we're not there, right? Let's pray for a miracle in Transnistria while we're away. But all of these examples, those are maybe three examples of how we can send people out, whether it's in our city, whether it's in our surrounding area, or internationally. Those are all very intentional, organized, planned trips. I want to give you an example of someone who was able to witness to Christ faithfully, but just doing it organically. So the first time that I met the lady who comes and she runs a cleaning company, she cleans our church every week, okay? She immigrated from Guatemala, one of the most joyful people I've ever met. And the first time we started talking, she just shared her testimony with me. She was like, like I didn't even really ask her to, she just shared it, she told me. She was like, oh, we're having a conversation? Great, gotcha, here we go. And it was really fun. I'm probably like the thousandth person that she's told her story to. But she really took that mission to heart, even though she wasn't a missionary per se. We just met organically through her work, and she represents that great witnessing work that you can do under the radar. We're confronted with people all the time through our work, through our sports, our hobbies. Let's take those conversations as opportunities to witness to Christ. Now, she was pretty gung-ho about it. I you know, I was kind of like, oh, maybe I want to meet the person a little bit first, but she just went at it, and it was a great conversation. She really encouraged me. She told me, never stop sharing your testimony. Never stop sharing your testimony. That was her encouragement. And I would encourage you guys to do the same thing. Never stop sharing your testimony. If you've ever been over to our house, you know that I love to drink tea. So, Sarah's got the coffee, I got the tea. But, I think I was drinking like a Twining's tea once, and I saw that the company began in England in 1706. 1706, it blows my mind to think that a tea company, like that's their entire thing, they make tea, that they've been continually operating for longer than our country has existed. Like, my country fought for independence, hashtag July 4th. We trailblazed the Wild West, we abolished Slavery, we invented airplanes, we defeated Hitler, sent human beings to the moon and back, and all the while this tea company in London has been growing plants and harvesting tea and and selling tea. Like, it's almost ridiculous to think about the simplicity and the basic work that has been going on at this company all the while these great events have been happening in the world. But isn't that a wonderful kind of analogy to the work of the church through the ages? So Jesus, right, is the one who ushered in and established that kingdom of God 2,000 years ago. He went around preaching, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And then he appointed out his closest followers to lay that foundation, which has since been sending out more disciples to make more disciples on every nation on earth. Jesus called his disciples fishers of men. It's that simple manual labor, right, which can be done organically or organized, all the while, the rest of the world fights its wars, they invent new philosophies, they make technology. We just keep our head down and do our work. That's the mentality, that's the image that I get when I think of the church throughout the ages doing the mission that God has called us to. And don't forget, this is a mission that God has called us to. It's a mission that is given to us by Christ. Some people, they don't wanna embrace missions. They feel like it's mean to impose on somebody else, that. We're so concerned with being tolerant in the society that we actually tolerate a lot of evil behavior and false doctrine. But the God who created this universe has called us to this mission. The God who judges between good and evil has called us to this mission. Guys, it's kind of like if your boss called you up and he said, I want you to do this. And you said, absolutely, get on it. You walk outside to go do the the task and then some random guy on the street comes to you and says, don't do that. What are you going to do? Are you going to listen to your boss? Are you going to listen to this random guy on the street who has no authority over you whatsoever? That is the mission that we're on in Jesus' name. So don't let the culture, right, demand you into submission. They need to be in submission to God. And God sent us on this mission. So we have all the permission and the power and authority that you need in order to go out and to share the good news. Right? There's some laws in certain states about what you can and can't say. Things are getting a little crazy out there. But what can I and what can't I say? What has God, who created the universe, said I can say? And what has he commanded me to say? So you have to keep this in your mind at all times. The authority that we've been given from heaven, that's all the permission I need. I don't need any government agency telling me I can and can't say something. If Jesus told me I should and I can, that's good. I'm going to do it. And that's all there is to it. You don't need any other permission. So I want to encourage the students, too, right? This is a, a great time for maybe the students in this area to think maybe I'm not allowed to say certain things in class. Maybe there are rules that the teachers set up. Maybe you'll get in trouble for those things, really. But that's a barrier that you should break through for Christ. You should spread the good news of the gospel. Because these people, they think they know what they want and they don't, they need God. I want you guys to be encouraged, to be inspired. Cross those barriers. Do it wisely. You don't have to be a jerk. (laughs) But don't let other people tell you to do something other than what God has told you to do. So we want to be powerful witnesses, right? But I want to ask, I mean, maybe some of this frightens you. Does any of this frighten you? This talk of witnessing, it's really nice when other people do it. Right? But I'm trying to inspire you guys to do it, and myself. Not just to sit around and wait for God to figure out a way without you. Like, God has figured out a way, and it's with you. Witnesses. Right? You might need to say some of those risky things. You might need to go to some of those dirty areas of the city. We'll see how Philly is. And after all, you might not even be the best speaker or the smartest girl in class. You might think there's somebody better than me to do this. Maybe you're not perfectly sinless. Maybe you definitely aren't perfectly sinless. Does God really use a bad sinner like me to witness in his mighty name? I think those two things, if we could put those up on the screen, there's two barriers that are very general, but you can go all out with them. You're either afraid, right? You say, I'm afraid, I'm not going to testify in the name of Jesus. Or two, I've sinned. How can I possibly be useful to God, right? I think those two basic reasons are good reasons that we sometimes have for being paralyzed. But I'm telling you guys, if you're in that position today, you're in good company. You're in good company. Remember Moses? He was afraid of public speaking when he was sent to go talk to Pharaoh. Moses, he said, no, I don't want to do this. Uh, Talk to my brother. He's a great speaker. Moses wasn't perfect, yet God used him to accomplish mighty deeds, right? Moses was the one with the staff and who parted the sea. The power was God's. But God used Moses. Need I remind you about the Apostle Paul, right? Who was a straight-up murderer of Christians before he was converted. It doesn't get a lot worse than that. If you're talking sinners, he was the worst. (laughs) Like, really, really bad. But yet God called him to a task in the church that was more important and honorable than any of us. God does amazing works through these fearful, sinful people. Because the Holy Spirit is the power by which these works are accomplished. Remember that Jesus told his disciples to wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. Stay in Jerusalem. Do not go out into the nations until I give you this baptism of the Spirit. See, we do not have what it takes in ourselves to accomplish the task that God calls us to. But what are we afraid of if the Holy Spirit is empowering us? It's not me, the sinner. It's God in me doing work. It's not me, the fearful man. It's God in me doing the work. What walls are standing around you guys, boxing you into submission? Are you afraid of embarrassment? Are you afraid of losing your job? Maybe you're afraid of death. Maybe there's a physical reality that you could die if you do this. But friends, that same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you when you witness in his name. That spirit that conquered death in Jesus its powerful. You don't have anything to fear. There's no need to worry. Just to pray. Or are you overwhelmed by that sinfulness that we talked about, right? Maybe you're still struggling with sins after years of being a Christian. You, you think there's no way you can imagine Jesus with you accomplishing anything noble. Well, I think the answer is found in verse 9 of our passage today. We can take a look at that last verse. After he said this, he was taken up, this is Jesus, before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. The great mission that we've been talking about all morning, this is something that Jesus started. His coming was the coming of the kingdom of God to earth, but the work of extending the kingdom, this work is for his disciples, right? Jesus was the only perfect, sinless human to ever exist, and he peaced out after telling his disciples what to do. He went up into the clouds, and he was hidden from their sight. There goes their great Savior, right? Their Lord and their leader, gone now. Who knows when he'll return? So they were left with themselves, and once they received the Spirit, they got to work. They knew that they were not perfect. They had sinned before a holy God, and they deserved the punishment that comes with that. But they also had received the grace of God in Jesus. He had died for them on the cross, taking their punishment onto himself. He had resurrected from the dead, defeating death once and for all. And now he entrusted into their hands the great mission of evangelizing and discipling the rest of the world, which was huge, huge task. Jesus said, they'll do even greater things than me. What does he mean? He means the whole earth. He started in Jerusalem, right? The whole earth is a big place but maybe you're hearing this message today and you can't honestly call yourself a witness. You're worried because you don't know Jesus for yourself and you don't have any clue what I'm talking about with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Friends, I would just encourage you to wait for the Spirit to fill you before you go out to testify in his name. Just like Jesus warned his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until my power comes upon you. I would just warn you today, wait in the church, be here. Keep coming to church. Keep engaging with our community. Ask us any questions you want. Pray to the Lord that you would be transformed. Wait here until God transforms your heart and sends you out as a powerful witness. You don't want to be a witness to someone you don't even know. That would be my encouragement today is here's a great place to be. Jerusalem, Willow Grove, great place to be. But let's get engaged with the Lord. Let's be powerful witnesses in the true sense of the word. So church, we don't need to stress about our own fears or our own weaknesses. We simply need to trust in Jesus, trust in the power of his Holy Spirit, and witness to the grace of God. May we all be powerful witnesses for his glory alone. Let's pray. God, we are humbled and amazed at the great work you did on earth so far. The world is being witnessed to by your church, and many people are coming to the wellsprings of eternal life and drinking deeply. May we be a church that shines brightly on our hill, May we be that salt of the earth. We don't know where you'll call us to or how long we have left in this life. But we do know that you'll empower us to this mission by your Holy Spirit. We trust you, and we will follow you where you call us. Please bring a revival to Willow Grove, a revival to the U.S., and a glorious transformation of hearts to the entire world. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.